Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor, and for the last eight years, I've done more than 380 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris FX products for the last 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, on Art of the Cut, we discuss the Ace Eddie nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, with one of its editors, Amy Foote. Joe Beanie and Brian A. Cates' ACE weren't available, but are also nominated for the film. Amy's credits include the documentaries Father, Soldier, Son, Hail Satan, A Matter of Taste, Serving Up Paul Liebrandt, and Bombshell, The Hedy Lamar Story. Before I hop into our discussion with Amy, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing base from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free No Limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, close to 30 actually, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Ace Eddie nominee Amy Foote on co-editing the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Amy, thank you so much for joining me about this documentary. Congratulations about the Ace Eddies and the Oscar, correct? Yes. That's fantastic for the whole team. You are one yeah. of several editors on this, correct? Yes, I'm one of three main editors, and then we also had some additional editing help as well. Okay. Just because they're not here and we want to honor them, tell me a little bit about your co-editors. The first one is Brian Cates, who started the project. We sort of all worked in tandem. We didn't really overlap, so, you know. So like serial, one after another. Okay. And then the second one is Joe Beanie, and he and I overlapped for a bit. And then we had additional editing with Joe Krings and Sabine Hoffman. Wow. So they're all terrific. And then you brought the project home? Yeah, I did with the help of, you know, the additional editors pre-Venice. And then after Venice, we went back into the edit room, just just I did for the last month for the New York Film Festival for the final, final lock. Fantastic. And with, with this project, I would think that New York Film Festival would have been a big one. Yeah. I am always think that documentaries, how they start is super critical. The first shot, the first two minutes. Can you tell me a little bit about the choice to start where you did? Because really there's two things going on. For those who haven't seen the movie, there's the story of Nan and her life as a photographer in in New York. And then there's her activism 
with the Sackler family. So you could have started it with either one of those two things. So why do you think that the documentary started the way it did? Starting with that first action at the Met where they threw a thousand fake Oxycontin pill bottles into the pool at the Temple of Dendor, that really sets up the sort of dramatic arc of the film. Who are these people? What are they doing? Who is this woman? It raises a lot of questions. Not too many that you're confused and disengaged, I, I would hope, but just enough to sort of, I, I need to know more about all of this. You know, that was the original idea for the film was that it was mainly going to be about her fight against the Sacklers. And it evolved over time, over the years. I mean, yeah, I totally agree. Openings are so important for documentaries, for any film. I tend to, to like cold opens. They really pull me in. And starting on those close-up shots of the pill bottles is another way to just be like, what? what is going on? What are all these people passing pill bottles? You know, you could have started the med. New York City, right. the date, you know, but it was this, you know, a bit more intriguing way to start. And also they snuck in there. And so it was a surprise, this action they did. So kind of trying to give that sense of what's going on, what's been about to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It does start with close-ups instead of, as you pointed out, it doesn't start out with an establishing shot of where they are. It starts out with like hands and pill bottles, very close. Yeah. 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 I love it. There's a montage of these cinematic mysterious images under the opening credits. Can you talk about what the mood was, you know, what was the purpose of those? That's kind of the second part of the opening. So I'm glad you brought that up because that sort of sets up Nairn's personal story. And we go to her working on her slideshow, which is one of the ways that she shows her photographs. And it does function as a credit sequence. So, so there's kind of time to just sort of absorb the music and the images and get your bearings and, you know, read, read some credits. But, you know, her slideshows are constantly being re-edited and, and she takes pictures out, she puts pictures in, she continues to change it. And so we wanted to kind of nod to that. It doesn't quite land that she's a famous artist. So that next scene that we go to where she's in a gallery telling people what to do and where to hang things sort of shows her, her oh, this person has stature mm -hmm. in the art world. We don't say like, she's a great artist, but there are these, you know, ways that you can decode. Oh, okay. Wait, this person is not just an outsider going into a, a museum throwing pill bottles. She's actually on the inside of, of the art world. Yeah. That's probably a tricky decision of how much to introduce Nan, right? And maybe it's my pedestrian art nature, but I didn't know who she was. So, you know, you don't want to over-explain, right? You don't want to get behind the audience. You don't want them to get ahead of you. But how much do you say, oh, by the way, she's a famous photographer and has been, and you eventually learn, oh, she's actually in these museums that she's protesting. We played around with the different ways to kind of get at that you know mm, interesting even we we even thought of a text card at one point nan is a data you know and we just kept trying that stuff and then just pulling back on it and just saying we want you to sort of come to understand nan's work through her life and and through this film rather than kind of trying to convince you oh you, you stay stay and watch this because she's really this <laughs> huge name in the art world but we, you know, we did play around with, with that. And, and I think by the time you, you get to her first real action, which was in the essay that she wrote in the Art Forum magazine, 
that editor, his interview, it again nods to, oh, she's a big person in the art world. So, yeah. so we kind of wanted it to come out organically. Yeah. And, and a lot of films do that, right? I mean, it's, it's interesting to have the audience not know why they're watching something and then you finally get it. I also love the point that you made is that you did try things like, oh, maybe we should put an art card in. Because editing is so much of a process, right? I mean, obviously on this film, how long was the process? When did it start getting edited? So I was on it for about 10 or 11 months. And before that, I think Joe was on it for maybe not quite a year. And maybe Brian was on for a year before. But the film sort of evolved. You know, it started in one place. And then when they realized that these interviews were going to be a part of it, that, that Laura did with Nan, that sort of changed the direction of the film, it was a process that sort of evolved in the edit, edit room. So you're, the interviews that you're talking about, I'm assuming that that's the, the audio that carries the film now. Yeah. Were those shot or was that just audio? That was just audio. Uh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, one thing I was yeah, quickly going to say about what, you, you know, how you try things and, and it's like you get to the end of a film and it's all there and you think, well, obviously right that's what it should have been like and so it's sort of hard to kind of step back and and think of all the things that you tried and i was working with somebody once and i thought gosh when i look back at my old rough cut i think an insane person edited this like why would i ever have thought this would work and, and he said and that's how you're going to feel about the current cut you're working on now in a few weeks yeah that's something that i've talked to other people about is that if you had just tried to jump right to the the final method you'd be like this isn't really working you know <laughs> you need to yeah. get to that point you need to yeah. try the other things you need to see what the process is going to bring you to i loved cinematic montage of the snow falling through the trees and in these close-ups of slides and slide projectors and all that stuff how long do you go before you finally get a voice that comes in and starts talking about sustaining memories that song that we use, the Klaus Nomi song, is just so big and beautiful. And the images are, are so beautiful and, and kind of mysterious the way it shot through the slide projector. And I think that's just sort of a feeling thing. You just came out of this crazy scene at the Met and it's, you just need a minute to sort of settle in. It might have been dictated a bit by the song when it was time to sort of pull out and, and, and hear Nan's voice, which is going to be sort of one of the main elements of the film. Since you just mentioned music, let's talk about spotting music. When does a piece of music start even? When, when does it start in, in the scene? Yeah, in any specific way. Like, it doesn't have to be the, the beginning of the film. Oftentimes I'm finding spotting is... Not at the beginning of a scene, for example. It might happen three quarters of the way through a scene and lead you into the next scene. The way we deal with music is so different in the sort of Nan personal story sections versus the forward moving verite sections. I tend to maybe use less music than more. I mean, sometimes I cut with music and then strip it out just to kind of get in the rhythm of the scene. I mean, we experimented with putting a lot more music in. Because as you saw, there's long stretches of just still photos and Nan's voice. And whenever we tried to spot music there, it kind of buried her. 
it buried her presence. So instead of subtly kind of supporting it, it sort of squashed what she was saying. And there's a lot of music because of her slideshows. And so that was really fun having those um, needle drops, which are, you know, from her original slideshows. There's a lot of different places that music was used. I mean, sometimes, you know, in the backstory sections, what we call the inner story, we use a lot of old Super 8 footage that had no audio. So sometimes that sort of called for some music. Mm. I have all these principles about sort of how I like to use music, but at the end of the day, it's sort of what you feel and you try things and you keep it work. Absolutely. I would love to hear what some of your principles are of when to use music. Because sometimes you got a principle that you go, hey, I only put music here then, you know, at a certain time. And then you work on a project that goes, this project's totally different than my normal principles. I tend to sort of maybe think, okay, I don't want to leave the scene with music. I want to like let the scene start before you're going to bring in music. That might be one of the things. I really do tend to use very minimal music because I can, I just find it sometimes so distracting. And it also tells the audience what to feel. Like, right, if you, like the places where you were saying that music couldn't really live with Nan, the music would make a comment on what she's saying that yeah. sometimes that you wouldn't, you wouldn't want the audience to know that you're commenting. Exactly. And in the Verite contemporary pain activism story, that was fun to, to use music because you really wanted to enhance how beautiful and exciting these actions were or how nervous they felt on the way in. So sometimes it's useful there to, to sort of support the emotion that, that is in the scene without pushing it too much. Did Nan have much to say about the production of this? I don't know how she involved she was in the actual film. Nan started the film. She started documenting the work that she was doing with her activism and eventually pulled in Lara and, and producers. She was very much a, a collaborator and she had strong feelings about what photos were being used. And, and I don't know if you noticed, but when we present her slideshows, we sort of cut to black and start her slideshow and then cut to black. And originally I had sort of blended her slideshows into the film more. And when she saw that, that was like, no, these are separate pieces of my work. I totally got it when, when she oh, said, sure. like, yeah, I yeah. was just sort of using it, you know, in, in, you were, in you were trying to be an editor creating a great transition. And she's like, right. no, I want there yeah. to be a delineation between my work and the rest of the film. Exactly. Yeah, totally yeah. get it. There was an understanding between her and Laura that these interviews were going to go very deep with the idea that if there was something that she ever felt uncomfortable with, she could choose not to include that in the film. And there was nothing that she actually took out of the film. When she wanted to change something, it was like she wanted to make it more nuanced or, or go deeper into it. So it was interesting. I love that answer. One of the reasons why I asked the question is because as a photographer, I thought, I love how there is no quote unquote Ken Burns effect, right? But yeah. as a, as an editor, I'm like, there's really no motion. If we put motion on the, on the photos, then that would give it some energy. But I'm sure she felt like she wanted those to be stills. When I had come onto the project, that language of the stills being still has sort of already been developed by Joe Beanie. It's also maybe part of the reason why music doesn't work for a lot of those things. I think if probably you moved in on a still, then you would probably want music. It's just like 
a vacuum mm. when she would speak and it was quiet with just the stills like that was enough and there seemed to be enough energy with her storytelling but yeah that, that was weird at first i was sort of like oh my god am i never gonna do a cut in or you know <laughs> But it's, it, you know, it, it held up, I thought. Yeah. But I, I think that it was interesting that the story is so much about this photographer. And so the stills are stills. The other question I have is about keeping one side of the story alive or the other, right? We've got the Verite Sackler stuff, and then we've got the Nan history, 80s New York stuff. Were, were there discussions or was that something that evolved as you were editing? Yeah. With the sort of forward-moving Verte scenes with pain, I think every time you left it, it's like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? You know, they just did this, pulled off this big action, but they're being ignored. Well, I know that they've had some success. So what's going to happen next? And now they're being followed by a PI. And so I think with those, it was like, they ended when it was a good, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, the, uh, an emotional transfer. And A handoff okay, from one to the other. Yeah, like they've now achieved this. What's next? I sort of got enough of this story that the stakes are higher each time you get to one of those pain scenes that there's a cliffhanger. I think that's what I was looking, you know, there's a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. That you sort of know where you are when you come back to the story after this maybe a long stretch, sometimes 15 minute stretch into her personal story. You remember where you were. Mm -hmm. And the personal stories, there are these sort of different eras in her life. And a lot of it was dictated by the storytelling that she did in those interviews and kind of when it felt like we've kind of got what we need to, to learn about Nan from this era of her life and, and so we're ready to go back. And there are different reasons that like the transitions work or the two different parts work and they're kind of different each one. There was yep. there are different reasons that, that, that these things are next to each other. Oh, and then, by the way, for those who haven't seen the film, every time you say PAIN, that's yeah. the acronym for this organization that's doing these actions at these museums is the, the PAIN organization. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. Do you, you just say, hey, look, we just need such a good handoff from one story to the other that it doesn't matter that we're 15 minutes away from the PAIN story? Yeah, we, we didn't really worry about the length mm -hmm. of either. We weren't really kind of looking at oh we can we, you know this is better this can't be 20 minutes you know we, we weren't really worrying about that the good thing about the chapter the oh, chapter yeah. break that sort of leads you back into these backstories is we we called it kind of a trap door matt hickson our wonderful associate editor i think he coined that and it's just the chapter breaks it's a trap door and you kind of go into this other you land in a different place in nan's life every time that was a useful transition the first chapter is called Merciless Logic. In the personal story, it's kind of when Nan first encountered this rebellious spirit of her sister and kind of what society does to squash that. And, and then that's also the chapter that, where you meet the Sacklers and sort of merciless logic of their capitalist greed. Other transitions or other times things are next to each other, like the story of her being battered by her boyfriend in, during the New York downtown section of the film is very close to when they're being followed by a PI. So there's a sense of danger. So, you know, there are different reasons things work or are connected. Yeah. No, that, that juxtaposition of ideas in a documentary is critical, right? Yeah. Just moving around all the time. <laughs> 
One of the things that I noticed because I'm trying to do a documentary with a similar idea is not as this documentary with the use of stock footage is when we go back into Nan's life, most of it is told through her own photographs. Great personal story, but there's also stock. Are there photographs from anybody else or is it always Nan's photographs and stock footage? Sometimes there are other photographs from other artists. I'm pretty sure mainly people, you know, she knows or she knew. And there's some stock video, I think. Tell me a little bit about that use of stock. And was it something that, and this might have been before your time on the film, but was it something that you found great stock and figured out how to use it? Or was it, we're trying to tell this part of her story and I need a shot of a bunch of cops in the red light district kind of, of when Times Square was kind of seedier. Yeah. I think the first place that we drafted in was when we get to downtown scene in New York City. And there's the beautiful shot of the Lower East Side of an old station wagon with the U-Haul thing on top of it. <laughs> the last chapter we were in Boston and I just felt like I need to ground us in New York, you know, we don't need to sort of see every iconic shot of New York City. There's a lot of speaking in the beginning, right, where she like lands us in the ballad and here's all the people she lived with. And then it sort of shifts to how she got into the art world. So there was a need for like a breath and a transition. And sometimes I didn't want to look at more photographs. So that was like a, a time where you can just like breathe for a minute. You're landed in a time and place. And you can go on to the next leg of the journey because it's true. So much of it is just her different stories. So sometimes it was used to sort of transition between different stories that she was going to tell within that same section. Now that I understand that all of that audio from Nan is audio only, it's not, you didn't shoot her. I worked for Oprah for a decade. And one of our things was if you're going to show somebody on screen, you're not just cutting to them because you don't have anything else to show. You're cutting to an on-camera presence for a reason. You didn't have her on-camera presence to cut to. So talk a little bit about how you were covering that audio, either to truly show what she meant or to hint at broader themes or whatever it was. She's talking about overdosing in Germany. What do you show? Right. Yeah. That's kind of the fun challenge, like when you don't have exactly what you need to depict something, you know, literally, then it's like, okay, how am I going to show this? And that can be where kind of more interesting things happen. Mm -hmm. She had done this slideshow called Memory Lost, which was about addiction and lots of different voices, including her own. We had used an excerpt from it, but basically she started taking a lot of photos of the sky. And I think memory loss had a lot of those photos that we used for that section about the overdose. And I had to tempt in some things that I felt like could work that were from this longer slideshow that we only use an excerpt of. That was a place where she came in and, and knew exactly the photos she wanted to use. I had had four or five photos. She's sent four different photos and those were in and they worked beautifully. So I love it. Yeah. How much of that work, especially the stock footage stuff that's not Nan's work, how much of that is 
either you asking researchers for something or researchers saying, here's what I got for you. Maybe this will help. We had an incredible archival team and a lot of what they found predated me coming on board. I think they mainly were getting things like absolutely related to Nan and her story. And then I would, you know, signal them like, I need something of Lower East Side. And most of the time they would have already have found it. And then they just gave me the the name of the, the file. You know, <laughs> and then I would just find it and have it. So yeah, they, they're incredible. And they worked for three years during the entire edit, pulling stuff in. One other thing that I love talking about with editing is reaction shots. And documentaries rarely have reaction shots, even in Verite, because sometimes there's only one camera and you're faking them or something. But in this one, there's a whole section where the pain group is on a Zoom call with the Sacklers, and they are being forced to listen to victim statements. Can you talk to me about the decisions that were made and when you would be on a various person who wasn't speaking? Because you could have just always been on the person speaking, right? If you wanted. Wouldn't have been, well, wouldn't have been interesting, but you could have done it. That's interesting. I mean, I don't want to take all of the, um, the mystery out of filmmaking, but that scene was shot with one camera. A lot of the people that I chose to speak were the ones that I had long enough segments on. I could have stayed on that 911 call with the parents mm. because that was fully captured. But it, we don't know them quite as well as we know our characters. And, and it, it, it felt really impactful to see them witness this. Often at times I might have a timeline of just all the shots of this character listening, all the shots of this character listening. And, and you sort of play with them until you get one that's like, oh, what he's hearing is clicking. And so you're kind of moving them around to sort of build the emotion of the scene. Well, that's interesting to me because I figured even if you have one camera, you've got the Zoom call and so that you were able to use whatever you wanted out of the Zoom call. That's not quite true. So that brings up another interesting point, which we probably all heard anybody that went to film school or just heard about documentaries is how if you are not using a reaction shot that is truly them listening to a specific phrase, how carefully do you try to use that reaction shot? Because you can make them seem terrible. I'm just going to hear this tremendous, horrible thing from a, a parent and I'll cut to them like looking off into space when that would not be oh, their reaction. Right. You could have done that. Talk to me about making those choices. I think when I listened to your question before, I thought you meant our characters listening, but you're talking about the cutaways of the actual Sacklers right, listening? The, well, it, but even that, sometimes you were cutting away to other people in the room that were listening to the whole Zoom call. Sometimes you were cutting away to the Sacklers listening. I'm really thinking about the Sacklers. They're there to hear this, these, these statements. And so you could have made them look really bad or really good. There were some times where I would put in a cutaway of a Sackler that did feel like a lie that just made them seem really disrespectful. I mean, they were pretty much dead the whole time mm. and just like maybe they would look at the, at the clock or look around uncomfortably. And, and that all was while people were speaking. You know, that wasn't during a break or anything like that. I wouldn't want to manipulate something where it 
would feel like a lie. Seeing them just stare blankly is bad enough, right? It's bad enough. A question of ethics and documentary is an interesting one. If somebody were to ask me like, oh, when he was listening, that wasn't what he's listening to. And he made that horrible look. And if I was to answer, oh, well, I faked that in such an extreme way that that would then disappoint mm-hmm. the person I'm telling that they feel cheated by that. I don't want ever to to be in a situation where the actual truth that I'm covering up would make somebody feel cheated. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're you're looking and you're like, that isn't, of course, what they're listening to, but they were listening to something similar. They were listening to another person. Absolutely. Yeah. That kind of, Absolutely. yeah, I like that. My final question from the film itself is, and I'm reading this without really thinking about it here, choice as Nan is discussing the suicide of her sister to end the section of Nan kind of breaking the fourth wall. Doesn't she say something? She kind of indicates that, oh, I know what it is. She says, I think we should stop rolling or something. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's an editorial choice, whether you leave right. her saying that in or not. So could you talk to me about that editorial choice? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. We wanted to make it very clear that this is Laura making this film about Nan and with Nan and that these conversations are not sort of voiceover. So there's different places in the film that we sort of sprinkle Laura reacting to something or, or, or speaking at the same time with Nan, just to sort of remind the audience that this isn't voiceover. This is this conversation between these two people. And it's sort of privileged that we're kind of accessing this conversation between these two women. After such an intense scene where she's talking about her sister, suicide, which had great impact on her life, I think it was important to show that Nan had that ability to say, you know, that's enough for tonight. I don't want to talk anymore. You know, that it shows that there was this degree of trust and that she was able to stop when she was done. And and that did happen after a conversation about her sister. So it felt true. And also it gave a sense of the emotion of it. Like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Which you could completely understand. And I really like that montage actually, now that I think about it, the montage where she gets all these documents about her sister. It's very emotional. It's incredibly powerful. I don't know whether you constructed that, but talk about the images that are used and when you are showing things that are exactly what we're talking about. She says, I read this thing and then you're seeing what she was reading and sometimes you're not. So I'm interested in in the construction of that montage about the sister's suicide. That was an intense scene to construct and Nan gave us access to those documents and Laura and I poured over them and actually that's where Laura discovered what would then be the title of the film, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which was in one of those medical documents. It was a quote from the sister, from her sister, Barbara. Nan is telling the story sort of independently of these records. The documents that, that we used were sort of general enough or sort of had less details. You know, if there's too many words and you're just landing in there, you're going to get confused. And I'm very sensitive to when people are speaking and there's text when I experienced that as an audience, what am I supposed to do? Listen or read, you know? So, you know, just careful placement of space and, you know, when we were going to land a document that required a bit more time to to be able to, to, to read, but also to be able to listen to Nan. And, and there were some things that Nan said that we found specifically 
in the documents. And all of those highlights are from Nan herself. She had poured over them for that slideshow she, she had done, Sisters, Saints, and Sybils. And yeah, a lot of those were her own highlights that we, we showed. Does that answer your question? Sure does. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about documentary filmmaking in general and, and editing. And tell me a little bit about how you even got into it. I got into it very haphazardly. It was not with a main plan. But I look back and I think, oh, I probably did want to do this, but I didn't even know what an editor did. I got very into documentaries when I was a teenager. I lived briefly in Austin, Texas, and they have great theaters down there. And I just found myself always wanting to watch documentaries. And I think it was after this film called Promises. I'm not sure, but I remember sitting in the theater and watching the credits with tears rolling down my neck and just thinking, wow, look at all these people that were part of making me feel this, having this amazing feeling. And wow, wouldn't it be so cool to be part of making audiences feel things? But that didn't leave me in down this path, I, I basically got an email from a friend that I knew from years ago saying, oh, I'm looking for unpaid internships on a documentary film by Jennifer Fox. Like, do you know anyone who would want to do that? And I said, oh, I, maybe I would. Just started as a part-time unpaid thing. And Jennifer Fox, the director of, of this six-part series that came out in 2007 that Nels Pay Anderson edited. And he, he's the editor who did Active Killing and Look of Silence. So I worked with him for a couple of years and they just both very much nurtured and mentored me. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't know if I can handle the risk. And they just, I oh, know you're going to learn how to cut a scene and you're going to learn how to do this. And then the minute I got behind and actually edited, I, I lost sense of time and, and couldn't, didn't eat and didn't go to the bathroom. And I thought, whoa, this is so cool. I can't believe I could get paid for this. And so one thing led to the other. I went to the edit center in New York that Alan Oxman ran and, and the rest is history. Well, that's fantastic. I love that story. And to think about that original, not completely turning your life around or anything, but that idea of seeing that film and going, I wish I could be part of this. And then much later that you were. Yeah. Fantastic. It's really cool. I, and it's funny, I didn't re remember that and years later until I was already cutting films. And that happens to Nan, even in this documentary, where it doesn't, at some point she goes, that's the first time I've thought of that. She's n not narrating. She's answering a question and something completely new to her about her sister's death, maybe, or something about her own addiction, maybe. I feel like there's two places that she says something. There might be said, two, but I know there's one. Well, there's one where she's like, I was thinking about this last night. And then she shares yeah. uh, something about how her friends kind of saved her. The other one, I wish I could think of it. Gosh. And, and you know, we kept that in because that's one of those other places to draw. This is this privileged conversation that's sort of unfolding and there's new things that are coming out. Mm-hmm. How much of that writing aspect of pulling that stuff is coming from the producer or somebody else? And how much are you pouring through those and also saying, I think this is critical that we pull this part of the interview? I've worked really closely with Laura. We were talking every day, multiple times a day, you know, depending on what was going on. I think it's like something that I just dropped in because it felt interesting and it felt right. And, you know, sometimes you're operating by feel but you're not sure why it works or you're operating with logic and, and you don't really know 
why it's going to work emotionally. So you're not always firing on all cylinders. So I think I just sort of, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think I might've just dropped that in. And Joe and Lara had talked about the importance of Lara's voice and that this was a, a film that that was specific to these two women. And so I, I kind of kept my ears out for any for phrases like that that could sort of help communicate that. Yeah, and, and humanizing it too. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And was Laura the person who was behind the camera? There's an early shot of someone actually filming. Was that her? That was Laura. Yeah. yeah. I love that yeah. kind of look behind the scenes at that early moment. But yeah. of course, the audience doesn't know who she is. But yeah, well, it depends on the audience. Oh, that's <laughs> true. True. Right? In, the, in the doc world, a lot of people know who she, she is. Yeah. But yeah, it's true. Amy, thank you so much for joining me and this really interesting look at this award-winning, award-nominated film and your nominated work doing it. Congratulations. Well, thank, you. thank you so much for having me. I feel honored to be able to be on your podcast. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to BorisEffects.com. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to BorisFX.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Amy Foote, for talking with Art of the Cut about the Ace Eddie-nominated documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. We'd also like to congratulate the other nominated editors on the film, Joe Beanie and Brian A. Cates, ACE. Thanks to Sam Rosenberg for editing today's podcast, and thanks to our partner Boris Effects and to our sponsor Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.